Amos, like the prophets of the Old Testament, brings a message that is a mixture. Like all the prophets, his message both confronts and comforts. The prophets confront us with our sin. And that's not pleasant. We don't like to have the areas where we fall short pointed out. But God doesn't point out the, the places where we are sinning to simply show how bad we are. He's like a surgeon. He cuts with the scalpel in order that he may heal. He breaks in order that he may mend. And that's where the comfort comes in. God gives us the comfort of restoration and repentance. That when we listen to the confrontation that comes in the words of the prophet, we should also hear the words of comfort that say, Return to me, come, and I will restore and bring healing. And Amos certainly stands in that prophetic line of saying words that both confront and comfort. And this text before us is no different. This morning I draw our attention to Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for loving us enough to both confront us with our sin and to comfort us with the hope of redemption that leads to reconciliation. Now, Father, I pray that you will give us ears to hear you this morning. We are surrounded by so many messages that often we feel overwhelmed and distracted. So I ask you this morning, O oh Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to let us hear your voice. Let all the distractions fall by the wayside, O oh God, and allow us to hear you. And please, O oh Lord, incline our hearts your testimony incline us to come to you father mend what is broken and heal what has been cut in the name of Jesus we pray amen anytime you visit a doctor there are certain indicators that they look at to determine the state of your health when it comes to your heart 
understand that two of the prime indicators that they examine are your blood pressure and your cholesterol. Elevated levels in both of those serve as a warning sign that your heart health may not be good and changes may need to be made. Now when it comes to our heart before the Lord, when it comes to our spiritual health, what are the indicators that we can gauge to see how our heart is toward God? Now many probably come to mind. You think, well, am I praying? Am I praying with a fervency, not just going through the motions? Am I in the Word? And, and those are indeed two very important indicators of our spiritual health. But in this passage, Amos gives us two indicators that we need to examine to see how our heart is before God. And those indicators fall in the area of wealth and worship. Is the management of the wealth that God has entrusted to us characterized by compassion when it comes to worship is our worship marked by integrity and both of those things are connected because what we love is what we will value and we will value what we love God has called us to love him supremely and ultimately he has called us to do that because loving Him gives us the joy and the satisfaction that we long for in this world. So in His love for us, God points out these questions of how are you handling the wealth that He has given you and where is your worship? And because God desires the best for us, He calls us to examine both of these areas. When we begin in verses 1 through 3, we see that our attitude toward wealth is to be marked by compassion. Our attitude toward wealth is to be marked by compassion. Now in verse 1, Amos begins with what is an attention getter as a preacher. Normally it's not wise to begin by insulting those you are speaking to. Nevertheless, Amos says a word that no doubt caused those who heard it to say, Did he really just call us that? You cows of Bashan! Now the area of Bashan was an area known for its lush pastures as well as its very expensive beef. The cows there were pampered. And when Amos says to them, you cows of Bashan, he is saying to them, you have been pampered and you are at ease and you need to hear what I am saying. Now please understand that this is not a word against all women. Amos is speaking at a specific time, a specific place, to a specific circumstance. Apparently in his time there was an elite class of women who exercised an amount of influence over the culture that was indeed vast and great. So Amos is addressing them because they have become the movers and the shakers. Much like in the time of Elijah, Jezebel had really become the leader of the time. So Amos is speaking to a specific class, women, who are in that ruling elite class at a specific time in a specific context. However, the principles that he says to them are applicable to all of God's people in all places at all times. Because the issues that he deals with them about are issues you and I wrestle with today. So he says to them, hear this. Hear this word. You are on the mountain of Samaria. Who, you are on the area where you and your richness are looking down upon everyone. He says there are three things you're guilty of in verse 1. You oppress the poor. You crush the needy. 
and you drive your husbands to do more and more to feed your gluttonous appetites. He says you're pushing. You're pushing to get more and more so that you can continue to live a very lavish lifestyle no matter what the cost is to the other people. So when they say to your husbands, bring that we may drink, it's basically pushing them to get more and more to feed this continuing cycle of greed no matter what the cost is to other people. So how does driving their husbands to get more and more bring oppression to the poor and crush the needy? What would that look like? could be something like this. Their husbands could have been in a situation where the, the poor owed them money. So in order to get more and more to feed the lifestyle of their wives, they raise the interest rates on men and women who are barely making ends meet and thereby making life much more difficult where many of the poor may lose their property. could be that they employed many could be that the poor worked their lands in a very agrarian society. So they begin saying, you need to produce more and more. I'm not going to pay you anymore, but you need to produce more and more so I can make more money. So in their desire to feed their greed, and as they are trying to continue their rise up the economic ladder, they are pushing others further and further down. And this is serious business to God. God takes seriously the plight of the poor. He takes seriously the cries of the oppressed. Notice what he says in verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. This emphasizes the seriousness of what God is saying. He's saying by the very fact that I am set apart, by the very fact of my being, I am saying to you that judgment, the days are coming upon you. And these days will be very, very dreadful. The days are coming when they... Now, the they is not identified in the book of Amos, but it's believed to be the nation of Assyria that about 100 to 150 years after Amos actually invaded this area. But notice what he says in verse 2. They shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. It's greatly debated about exactly what Amos means, but the general overall picture is that these are hooks that would be used to drag the dead bodies out of the cities and notice he says in verse 3 you shall go out through the breaches it's a reference to the walls there are breaches in the walls and the walls that were meant to protect the city have been so decimated by destruction you just walk straight ahead and you'll go through the walls think about the the gravity of what Amos is saying He's saying, I want to drag, your dead bodies will be drugged over the rubble that you built by oppressing the poor. It's a serious warning that is to be given and needed to be heeded. Now there are two dangers that when we read this and we begin to think about our wealth that we can fall into. We can begin to see this as a warning just for rich people. You see, it's easy for us to sit back and say, man, I'm glad I don't fall into that category of being wealthy so I can just kind of think that this needs to be spoken of to other people. We know that issue of, of wealth is really one of comparison. If you were to take me and compare me and, and to Bill Gates and my level of wealth, I'm pretty poor compared to Bill Gates. But if you were to compare me to the majority of the world, I'm really very wealthy. 
You see, we gauge wealth by this issue of comparison. And we will always compare ourselves to those that make us look in a more favorable light. And keep in mind that the issue here is not wealth or being wealthy. It is not a sin to have money. In fact, when you read in the Old and the New Testament, there are people of substantial means that were used by God and used their wealth for God. In the Old Testament, men like Abraham, Job, Boaz, David, they were men of, of substantial means. In the New Testament, there was Lydia, who was a seller of purple, apparently a very wealthy businesswoman who supported the ministry of Paul. There was Theophilus, who it's believed paid, underwrote the ministry of Luke to research and to write the Gospels. There are others, such as Erastus, mentioned in Romans, Prisca and Aquila, people of substance. So the issue is not, is it bad to be rich? No, it's not bad to be rich. The issue for the rich and those who do not have wealth is the issue of love. You see, the reality is that whether you are rich or poor, the issue of greed is still very real. Paul addressed this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. You see it up on the screen. As he's writing to Timothy to the church at Ephesus, he says these words, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Though, in other words, those who set their heart their goal in life is to get money and to make more and more and more. He says, they're setting themselves up for failure. Verse 10, and this is the reason why. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul is simply echoing the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 you'll see what Solomon preached upon the screen he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income this also is vanity you see the issue is one of the heart greed infects the poor and the rich it doesn't matter what status you are we can all fall into the thinking that if I just had more then my life would be at ease in fact, research was done by Loyola Marymount out of California where they discovered that all across the board when people were asked, what do you need to be happier and to feel comfortable? The answer was the same. 10% more. Whether a person made $30,000 a year, $60,000, $250,000 a year, or a million a year, every one of them said, just 10% more and I'd be satisfied. Just 10% more. One professor pointed out the irony of this, but that the very nature of greed is endless. It's never assuaged. And by being a form of the impulse to live, it ceases only with death. So see, it's an issue of the heart. And that's what Amos is addressing. You see, and he's addressing this second danger that we need to be aware of because the first danger is to see this as applying to other people, those that have money and stuff. But the other danger is this, that we ignore our own tendency towards self-indulgence. It's very easy for us to have an attitude that says, as long as I'm comfortable, and as long as I'm getting what I want, it matters not how that impacts others. After all, we reason. Didn't Jesus himself say, the poor you will have always with you? 
Didn't Jesus acknowledge the poor would be there? And yes, he did. However, that is not an excuse for us to ignore uh, the part that we may play in systems where the poor are systematically oppressed. Where injustice becomes the norm of the day rather than the exception. Jesus wasn't saying we shouldn't do what we could. He was saying to look at and to recognize that yes, there will be poor, but do what you can because the gospel radically changes our vision of what it means to be people and part of the body of Christ. Peter Brown did a scholarly uh, research effort into wealth in the early church. His book's entitled The Eye of the Needle. He says this, that Christianity radically changed the way people that believed the gospel understood the poor and the marginalized. He said in the 4th and the 5th century, the poor were seen to represent an extreme of the human condition. There were people teetering on the brink of destruction and thereby condemned to the outer margins of society. The poor, just like today, were viewed as those people. But Brown says Christianity changed that. Christianity brought about this dramatic change where, according to him, quote, the poor were not simply others, people who trembled on the margins of society, asking to be saved by the wealthy. Now they were also brothers and sisters. They had the right to cry out for justice in the face of oppressors along with all the other members of the people of God. You see, the church broke down those barriers so that on the same pew there would be the banker and the broke. There would be the struggling and the secure. There would be the poor and the powerful coming to break the bread of Christ together. And that's what we need to aim for. You see, the mind of Christ is one that seeks to serve rather than seeking to be served. You see, the path to freedom from the guilt, the greed that often grabs our hearts is learning to find contentment, learning to be generous. Because if we don't, the greed that we live by will consume us. Sam Polk was a man that had achieved the American dream by the age of 30. Now get this, by the age of 30, he had made more than $5 million in bonuses. That's bonuses on Wall Street said at the age of 25, when he had established already his career as a trader on Wall Street, he said it was nothing for me to buy tickets with cash to go to, the walk to a World Series game. He said by the age of 30, though, he had recognized that this American dream was really a nightmare. He said he was working with people who had so much money, billionaires, that if they wanted to, they could literally buy islands. He said they could become the mayor of New York. They didn't just have money, they had power. Senators came to their offices. They were royalty. He remembered getting angry. Angry. Because he had received a $3.6 million bonus. And he said, I became mad because it wasn't big enough. He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times explaining why he quit walked away he said I came to realize I had been using money as this thing that would quell all my fears so I had this belief that maybe someday I would get enough money that I would no longer be scared I would feel successful and one of the things I learned on Wall Street was no matter how much money I made 
money was never going to do it. It's very easy for us to fall into the thinking that drove him to get more and more. I want to give you a sentence to fill in the blank. How would you finish, or I'm sorry, fill in the blank in this sentence? If I only had blank, then I would be happy. If I only had blank, then I would be happy. What would you write in there? Better job? More money? And then comes the voice of the promise of the prophet Amos. Where does God fit into that? How many of us in a very open moment of candor would say, you know what? I didn't think of God. If I only had more of Christ, then I would be happy. The issue of wealth is one that impacts us all. Because all of us have been given things by God. And I find it very interesting that Amos transitions from wealth to worship because those are connected. When Amos began speaking in verses 4 and 5, he moves to the issue of worship. And he shows that this issue of wealth impacts how we worship. And that our worship must be marked by integrity. Verses 4 through 5, if you are a sarcastic person, verses 4 and 5 will appeal to you. Because they are dripping with sarcasm. They're really a call to worship. This is the call of the, the prophet saying, come to church. But look what he says. Come to Bethel. Come and worship and sin. Come to Gilgal. Come and worship. Come on to church and sin all the more. He's mocking their worship. He's saying you're coming and you're doing all the right things. You bring your sacrifices. You bring your tithes. You offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. You proclaim free will offerings. But you're just doing them by going through the motions. You're doing them to gain the applause of the people around you. Because what is missing from their worship is morality. The prophet Micah preached approximately 100 years after Amos. But his message was in many ways the same. He says, what does God require of you? What does God want of you? But to do justice, to love God, and to show kindness. That's what God desires. And just going through the motions without having a concern for what is right and wrong in society is displeasing to God. Coming to worship without having a compassion for the needy does not please our Lord. Coming to worship without a care for the hurting is not what God desires. God does not want us to sit in a room and shout hallelujah and then go out in the world and turn a blind eye to the hurting. See, this is an old issue for the church. That we divide our faith and that we have church where we do certain things and act a certain way. But then we got real life outside where you have to be hard and mean and you can't stop for a moment just to help. Jesus spoke to this. Speaking to his disciples, look on the screens at Luke 20 verses 45 through 47. And in the hearing of all the people he said to his disciples... Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. 
they will receive the greater condemnation. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying they're given this pretense of worship, but in verse 47, they would sell a widow's home in a heartbeat to make money. He's saying that attitude gets a greater condemnation from God. God is concerned about the plight of the poor. And as people who come to worship Him, we need to ask, Lord, how can I use what you have given me in a way that's pleasing to you? Now, I recognize that it's overwhelming to think about the oppression, the injustice that's happening in our world. It's overwhelming. In fact, it's enough to make us stop and throw up our hands and say, I can't do anything against this. Well, the first thing we need to do is to be aware. Often we have the attitude that if it doesn't affect us, then I'm not even going to think about it. But that's not the attitude God calls us to have. The other thing is that just because the problems are big, it doesn't mean that we have an excuse not to do what we should do. There's an old story, cliched in many ways, yet it makes a very poignant truth clear. The storm had struck the coast of Florida. It was so violent that many animals, fish and starfish, were washed up on the beach. man went out for a walk after the storm, and he's looking at the starfish, and he sees a little boy picking up a starfish and throwing it back out in the water. And the man watches as the boy picks up starfish after starfish, throwing them back in the water, getting them back into their natural environment. man walks up to the little boy, and he says, Son, it's great what you're doing, but you can't, you can't correct all this. This is too much. The little boy picked up one more starfish and he threw it out. He said, but I can make a difference to that one. To that one. This is a call for us to start where we are. To begin asking ourselves, as we come to worship, are we turning a blind eye to issues of justice and compassion? Sometimes it scares me to think, what Amos would say to us if he were standing here and then I realize he is speaking to us it's very encouraging amidst all the mindless drivel that's seen on television to see something that is really thought provoking such an instance occurred to me with a commercial it's a commercial from an insurance company but quite frankly this commercial is not really pushing the insurance commercial begins at a homeless shelter. It's clearly Christmas because decorations are hung up around. There's a Christmas tree. It's a buzz with activity. It's clear there are a lot of volunteers that are there working. A man sits down at a piano. His name is Willis Earl Bill, who ironically enough at one point in his life was homeless. And he begins singing a song, a song I'm familiar with because it takes me back to the 1980s but it sings the refrain will you forget about me the screen goes dark for a split second and then when it comes back on it's the same homeless shelter but the decorations are gone the volunteers that were there filling the place with activity they're no longer there now the place is empty except for a few people still looking for food. And the words come across the screen. The season of giving ends, but the need remains. 
question comes, as the body of Christ, what's God calling us to do? What's he calling us to do? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.